Uh, Today's reading is going to be in the 8th Psalm, so if you can open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8. As you know, we are not King James only. There's two primary translations we use in this church, sometimes three. Uh, But as I teach through some of the Psalms, many of the Psalms, I'm actually going to be using King James Version because there's something so beautiful about the old English language when you're reading Psalms. So we've already taught through probably five different chapters through Psalm, and today is going to be chapter 8. We can sit here and make this into three weeks easily, but I think sometimes if we we try to over-exegete God's Word and over-commentary God's Word. Sometimes we can put too much into it where we take away what God has already attended just in the Scriptures alone themselves. In summary, we will glean the following from this grand psalm, the 8th Psalm. And in a nutshell, here's what it is in one paragraph of what this psalm says. Before the fall, God enabled man the first Adam, to have dominion over God's creation and to have all things underneath his feet. But after the fall, God put all things under Christ's feet, Christ who is the second Adam, and that God would use the weak, such as an infant, especially baby Jesus, to bring about his triumphs. Though being created in the image of God, we will see the dignity and and significance of man but we will also see the insignificance of man compared to Christ and God. Moreover, we will see the divinity, majesty, and excellence of our Creator and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Psalm 8 is in a nutshell. One famous scholar said this of chapter 8, The hymnic quality of this psalm has been observed by many. The difficulty of classification is due to the many elements woven together in a poetic blend. For our purpose, we shall consider it as a hymn of praise, and more particularly, a hymn of creation praise. Bergermann treats this psalm together with Psalms 33, 104, and 145 as songs of creation. And isn't it beautiful that we can actually have service outdoors, with a beautiful day like this, sometimes hearing the birds, sometimes hearing the animals talk to us while we're having church service. The Lord is the object of praise. He continues to go on to say, The Lord is the object of praise. Therefore, the praise is not an expression of joy in creation apart from the Creator. Pantheism defies and glorifies nature as a separate entity from the Creator. But theism joyfully looks at God as the good creator, ruler, and sustainer of the world. Close quote. So let us think of God's creation, but most importantly, let us think of the creator of the creation and the giver of the gifts as we study this eighth chapter. Another scholar said this, Spurgeon, For the scope and business of this psalm seems plainly to be this, to display and celebrate the great love and kindness of God to mankind, not only in his creation, but especially in his redemption by Jesus Christ, whom, as he was man, he advanced to the honor and dominion here mentioned, that he might carry on his great and glorious work. So Christ is the principal subject of this psalm, and it is interpreted of him both by our Lord himself 
in Matthew 21:16, and by his holy apostle, apostle in 1 Corinthians 15 and Hebrews 2. End of quote. Church, we will be dividing this eighth psalm in, into many, many different uh, divisions. And it, first of all, in verse 1a, is an inscription of praise as the psalmist opens up with a description of praise to Almighty God. Then in verses 1b through 2 is the glory of the great king. And verses 3 through 4 is God's interest in man. And verse 5 is man's derived glory. In verses 6 through 8 is man's glory as ruler. And then in verse 9, the last verse, is a concluding inscription of praise. So let us read the text first, verses 1 through 9. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? And thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. O Lord, O Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Amen. Thanks be to the word of God. Let us begin our exposition of these nine verses. First, Verse 1a, an inscription to praise. O Lord, O Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set the glory above the heavens. In verse 1a, he first addresses God as what we would call today, in modern language, all upper caps, as O Lord, which is the Hebrew word for Yehovah which means the existing one. And as we went over a few weeks ago, it is a noun proper deity. Think of the deity as we're preaching through this psalm. Think of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through his word of God. It literally means, O sovereign one, O our sovereign one. His second word, Lord, is the Hebrew word, Adon, Adon, which means that he is the sovereign controller of, a human or divine, and ruler and master and owner of everything. He owns every bit of the cattle on the hills. Therefore, in the Hebrew, this could be translated, better translated in the Hebrew to English as, O Yehovah, you are the existing one who is a dawn. You are the sovereign controller, ruler, master, and owner of all. That's the God that these scriptures are speaking of. This Redeemer God, Yahweh, is Lord over all. He is Lord over people. He's even Lord over the non-saved people. The title, Our, Our Lord here, Adon, is an address to God as King. Addressing God as King, as our governor, and as our ruler. And regarding the only time you're going to hear politics from this church, at least from me, 
in the pulpit is when it's applicable to the word of God. And in the Hebrews, this could mean governor, that God is governor of all, and Christ is governor and ruler of all. And so I say this, because it is a problem today in America with the majority of churches. Regarding the translation governor, or to govern here, sadly too many churches today in America believe that the governor, or or churches in California believe that the governor of California has the right to govern or rule or lead their church. That the governor, they think, they wrongly believe that the governor can actually tell us how to have worship. That he's commanded churches to not sing praises. Imagine that. And this church will not obey those commands of that governor. The governor of California, Gavin Newsom, is not our church's governor. Our Lord Jesus Christ is our governor. For he is the head of this church. For he is the one that died for our sins. For he is the one that bled out on Calvary and shed his blood for his beautiful blood-bought bride. That is why this church, and I'm not boasting in ourselves, I'm boasting in Christ. That is why this church has never, ever missed one true in-person Lord's Day church service ever since we first ever heard of the words coronavirus or COVID. We never closed the doors on the church, on the people. And the only reason why we meet out here today, which I think is beautiful, by the way, because our landlord has requested us to. As the section one of our church bylaws, which I emailed to all of you, please read those bylaws. The purpose of the church is to glorify God. Any ministries the church deems necessary to accomplish this goal are solely the business of the church and are not to be regulated by any outside authority, including governments, ecclesiastical bodies, or others separate in any way from the church. Close quote. Verse 1b through verses 2 says, is the, glory, is the glory of the great king. In verse 1b it says, How excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. God's name alone is excellent. There's excellence in the name of God. Jehovah. Adon, Jehovah, Christ, God Almighty. There's excellence in the excellency of Almighty God. The glory of God is all around us. As I taught in Romans chapter 1 a year ago, it says in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The lost will be without excuse on Judgment Day. As one author said, the whole creation is full of his glory, full of his glory, and radiant with the excellency of his power. His goodness and his wisdom are manifested on every hand. The countless myriads of terrestrial beings, from man the head to the creeping worm at the foot, are all supported and nourished by the divine, by his divine bounty. The solid fabric of the universe leans upon his eternal arm. Remember when we did an exposition of Isaiah 53? It talked about Christ's arm 
the the inter the, the 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 interposition the doctrine of interposition is Christ interposed on behalf of those whom he died buried and rose again for and today he's seated at the right hand of the father where he will intercede on our behalf because God is omnipresent his name is majestic everywhere at the same time He's not the Americanized God bless America God that we see on social media. God is sovereign. He's the ruler and king over the entire universe and his entire creation. Moving on to verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. In verse 2a, David uses God's precious creation, the human infant, the little baby, to set forth his praise and to illustrate his power and skill. Sadly today, it means nothing for the unregenerate to abort the unborn child before he or she even gets to nurse he or she's mother's breast. But God came to us in the form of an infant. God came to us in the form of a baby. As Jesus Christ, God put skin on on behalf of us so they can live 33 years and so that Christ can live a perfect life, that Christ can keep all of the law, the law that none of us can keep and the law that all of us have broke. And then he went to that cross where he pled on behalf of his church where after he was, as he was dying, he justified God's elect. He justified Christians and justified us before the Father. He paid our sin debt so that we don't have to stand before God and be punished for our sins. Christ was punished for our sins on behalf of God's elect. In Matthew twenty-one sixteen, Jesus actually quoted this song. Do you hear what these little children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. We have a nurse in our congregation, and her calling is nursing babies at Loma Linda University, nursing babies, administering medical expertise to babies so that babies may live, so that the babies may have a quality of life, His glory is established. His glory has been ordained. And no enemy can overcome the kingdom of God. The translation that you have, if you have the translation, you have ordained strength. It may say you have ordained strength. It may also be rendered as you have established a bulwark. And then in verse 2b it says, That thou mightest still the enemy and the adventure. The psalmist asked God that he might still, that he might still or silence men who rail against God. This is an imprecatory prayer. A few times in my life, as I mentioned briefly on Thursday night prayer service, I have actually prayed imprecatory prayers. And it's right if you do it with the right motive and the right intent, that the person might repent from their evil ways. And that God might save them from their sins. Otherwise, Lord, please remove them. And I remember praying, having many Christians, a long, large international prayer list, pray an imprecatory prayer over a police officer who was an atheist, who hated Christ, and he hated me. 
And we had found out that he was going to plant evidence. He conspired with another person to plant evidence on me to have me terminated. And we prayed in precatory prayers. And within a few months, the man was terminated. He lost his job. And it's not easy to be fired as a police officer with AB, AB 301, the Police Officer's Bill of Rights. And then there was another incident that had more graphic results than that. It was very tragic what happened to the person. But God does shed his favor upon some whom would submit an imprecatory prayer up into the heavens to our God. And God sometimes answers those prayers in a very just way. Next in verses 3 through 4 is God's interest in man. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? In verse 3, the psalmist praises the creator for his creation, as we should too, as we do also, I'm sure. That we that he even created the heavens, the moons, the stars, he even named them. And that thou hast ordained all things to consist the way they do. We should all enjoy exploring outdoors. That's why some of us were stubborn during this so-called stay-at-home order. Most of us did not stay at home. We enjoyed God's creation. We enjoyed the outdoors. We enjoyed the sounds of birds, the sounds of thunder, animals making noises, animals revealing the glory of God, animals boasting that God created them. As another said, a survey of the solar system has a tendency to moderate the pride of man and to promote humility. Pride is one of the distinguishing characteristics of puny man, and he has been one of the chief causes of all the contentions, wars, devastations, systems of slavery, and ambitious projects which have desolated and demoralized our sinful world, yet there is no disposition more incongruous to the character and circumstance of man. Close quote. The Lord our God has established two spheres of rules. Two spheres of rules, including, but not limited to, and many things in between. But those two specific spheres are heaven and earth. He has established the celestial bodies in the firmament, and has given them rule over day and night, whereas he appointed a man to govern the earth. God has appointed us to, to, to rule and have dominion over the earth. But now Christ is the ruler who we actually submit underneath him. It says in Genesis 1, 17 through 18, And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness, and God saw it was good. Genesis 1.28 Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Last week, I enjoy fishing. I try to go one day a week, but usually three times a month. Last week, while fishing out in the ocean, I again thought of this verse as I do many times when I'm out in the outdoors and I caught a baby stingray 
And I held the stingray in my hand, and he was actually trying to sting me as I was holding him. And I held him in my hand, literally holding his life in my hand, having dominion over that little fish, having the power to kill him and take his life, or to release him and let him go. And yes, I'll tell you the end of the story. I did remove the hook. I gave him a little love, and he just flapped right back into the ocean and took off so he can grow up and be a big big stingray and sting somebody that's surfing. But solely dea gloria for his creation. That God allows us to have dominion over his beautiful creation. Although we don't worship trees, we respect God's creation. Though we don't worship animals, but we do give him the praise and the glory for his creation. Moving on to verse 4, it says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? In verse 4a, he said, What is man that thou art mindful of him? This man is the Hebrew word anosh, anosh, which is a mortal man or a frail man. It's an allusion to his essential infirmities, because man is insignificant compared to his creator. I am insignificant to Christ, who is the true head and pastor of this church. This son of man in the Hebrews, the Hebrew word bang, which, which could mean a son or a daughter or a child or a grandchild or any other form of speech, like as another person. And the man in the son of is the word Adam, which is in reference to the first Adam, Adam, our first relative, as we all here are relatives and descendants under the first Adam. You see, that's where sin started. We went over that in catechism recently. And because of the original sin in the garden, we are descendants of that relative. That's why we must be born twice, born again, regenerated, and saved by Christ, who is the second Adam, because he is the one man that never had sin. And we need to become descendants under the second Adam, who is the seed of the son of David, Jesus Christ. That's why we need the second Adam, because we've been born under the first Adam. And then, although we may be descendants under the first Adam, we now become related to God through Christ, adopted into the family of God, adopted into the kingdom of God, adopted into the kingdom of light, because of what Christ did on that cross for his elect. Verse B says that thou art mindful of him. Though we are mindful of man, we must be more mindful of God, Christ and his word. Our minds should be infatuated with God, infatuated with Christ, infatuated with each and every fruit of the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Verse 4, And the Son of Man that thou visitest him, the Son of Man simply varies the form of speech. Again, any person, another person, in verse 4d, he said, Thou visitedest him in favor. This favor is now more fully illustrated. He visited us them in favor. God's favor is a wonderful thing. My favorite person is God. My favorite being is God. And it's beautiful to experience his favor in your life. Have you ever experienced God's favor in your life? Well, first of all, when you were saved... He shed his favor upon you. By grace we are saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and not of our works, lest any man should boast. 
That is a great deal of favor. But once we've been saved, once we belong to him, think back and remember the many times that God shed his favor upon you and picked you out of a crowd and gave you favor in a particular area. And keep continually thanking God for that favor. And I believe it's nothing wrong. I don't believe it's selfish to ask God for more favor. And it's certainly not selfish to ask God to extend his favor upon another brother or sister in Christ. Psalm 65.10 O thou waterest the ridges thereof abundantly, thou settlest the furrows thereof, thou makest it soft with showers, thou blessest the spring thereof. As one scholar said on verse 4 of verse 4, in relation to the vastness of space, the order and the importance of the heavenly bodies, what is man? Why did God invest man with glory? Think of that question. Why did God invest man with glory? Why does God uniquely care for man? The questions are poetic devices to evoke a sense of awe and place a proper perspective on one's self-worth. Inasmuch as God gave shape to the heavenly bodies with his fingers, why should he concern himself with man? The word man, enos, is a poetic word for man in his frail human existence, whereas the idiom son of man is contrasted with God. Man is by nature an earthling, and yet he is the particular object of God's creation. The God who, have, who gave shape to heaven with his fingers continues to focus his attention on man. Close quote. Isn't that beautiful? And God particularly thinks highly of his elect, Christ's bride, whom he loves very much. Next in verse 5 is man's delivered glory. Verse 5. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Notice the two hymns in verse 5. The two hymns. For thou hast made him, and thou hast crowned him. These hymns are the same Hebrew word, who. This speaks of Christ as a humbled man, like Adam, displaying his human nature, who is truly man. Christ is truly man, and he's truly God. He's the sa- Christ is the same one who is fully God, truly God and truly man, who is later exalted through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. As it says in Hebrews chapter 2, But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of, or the son of man that you take care of him? Have you made him a little lower than the angels? You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 21-28. There's a lot in this cross-reference. I'd love to do an exposition of this, but we're just going to use it as a cross-reference. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. There's the first man and us, and the second man, Jesus Christ, right there. For since by man, Adam, the first Adam, came death. Because Romans 6.23 says that the wages of our sin is death. But, Romans 6.23b says, But the gift of God is eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. For since by man came death, 
Then by man also came the resurrection and the dead. Those of us that are born again will be resurrected from the dead, the Lord in heaven forever. And those that are not saved, that are not born again, that have not yet repented and put their trust in Christ alone for salvation, will perish in hell. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, all die in Adam, 100% of the human race. Even so, in Christ all shall be made alive. Though when we do die, we will be made alive if we die in Christ. If we die in Christ, we will be made alive again, where we will be glorified in heaven. We don't get a new car, a new pension, new health, a new wife. Shame on anybody that thinks they want a new wife. Or a new husband. But we will get a glorified body in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 23. But each one of us in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evidence that he put all things under him that it is accepted. But now, excuse me, now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Amen. That's a powerful passage. There's a lot in there to dig out. In verse 5b, it says, And hast crowned him with glory and honor. This glory and honor, or majesty, this majesty, glory, and honor, are his attributes of royal dignity. God's majesty. Christ's majesty. His royal dignity. Psalms 21.5 says, His glory is great in thy salvation. Honor and majesty hast laid that hast thou laid upon him. Psalm 45.3 Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. Let us never fail to emphasize the glory, the honor, and the majesty of our Lord our God. And the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. I place an emphasis added on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Everywhere I go in ministry, even in evangelism, it refutes easy believism. And they say, well, that's Lordship salvation. No, it's not. Once we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, I ask you, church, how could we not worship the lordship of the one that died in our, in our place? How could we not worship the lordship of Christ Jesus? Next, in verses 6 through 8, is man's glory as ruler. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, that thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, Yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the pass of the seas. In the beginning, God created man, again the first Adam. 
He had dominion over all things in his creation, and he had all things under his feet. The garden was perfect. But that was later given, that dominion and authority and power was later given to Christ, the second Adam, except in a more divine way, in his divinity, as part of the triunity of the Godhead, because Christ, though he was man, he was divine. As God's representative on earth, man was given dominion over all kinds of animals, birds, fish. There was nothing that was not put under him. But according to Hebrews 2, 6 through 9, the fall has turned some of God's creation against us. Some of God's creation is now turned against us. Similarly to how some of the some of the, the human beings have turned against us, against the church. Some dogs will bite. Some snakes are poisonous. Last month, another fishing story, a month ago, I reeled in a venomous scorpion fish. That venomous can harm a human, but it's very necessary because it protects that scorpion fish from predators, from predators killing it. There's good bacteria and there's bad bacteria. The weeds in our garden never seems to go away. You see, the curse of the garden is very widespread, and we all deal with it. Whatever it be a common cold, a flu, any other virus, cancer, etc., we all deal with the curse of the garden. That is because when sin entered the garden and the world through the first Adam, man lost his unqualified sovereignty over the lower creation. As one author said, listen to this, Yet God's purpose still stands. He has decreed that man shall indeed have dominion and nothing can block God's promises. So while we do not see all things subject to man right now, we do see Jesus, the one person by whom man's dominion will eventually be restored. When Christ came to earth, he became temporarily lower than the angels, so that as man he could die for the human race. Now he is crowned with glory and honor at God's right hand. Someday Christ, the Son of Man, will return to earth to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords in the millennium. The dominion that was forfeited by the first Adam will be restored by the last Adam. Close quote. Next, in verse 9, is the concluding ascription of praise. Uh, today will be no doubt the shortest sermon I've ever preached. But like I said, why over exegete this psalm, it speaks for itself, I believe. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how excellent is thy name in all of the earth. Appropriately, the psalmist ends this psalm with a repeat of how he opened up in verse 1. He opened up with the same praise, and he closes up with the same praise. Christians, think of this as your prayer to God. You know, we are to pray petitions to God just like this opening up with praise to Him, to the Father, through the Son, and the Holy Spirit, giving Him praise, thanks, glory, and honor for everything that He's done for us, even for the things that He has not done for us that we might be praying for. He gave God the praise in the beginning, throughout the psalm, and at the end of the psalm. And we too as Christians, as followers of Christ, ought to give praise to God in the beginning, in the middle, and especially during the end. 
I have had the unusual task of tending to, you know, physicians will tell you these stories. Of course, not as a physician, but tending to the body of a, or the soul of a person who is ready to die. And I've seen people die in Christ. And it's a glorious thing as a police officer to witness a saint die in Christ, giving thanks and praise to, and the glory to God in their last breath. Church, the creation cries out to their creator as we should too. Let us always give God and Christ the glory throughout our lives. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for bringing us together today again. We thank you for simple things, but it's not so simple. Oxygen, we overlook it. We forget about it, that it's something that we must have to breathe. But you, by your grace, allow us to breathe your oxygen that you created. We oftentimes think about bottled water. We have it in streams, lakes, but we also have it coming out of pipes and plumbing and faucets. We can go to the store and buy it in plastic bottles, glass bottles. Lord, we've, we've taken those things for granted. Simple things like oxygen and water, H2O. But not so simple because we cannot survive without them. But by your grace, you've allowed us to have the water touch our lips. To have the air, the oxygen touch our nostrils and our mouth. We thank you so much for these things, Lord. Help us demonstrate this psalm throughout our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.